don't judge people for having confirmation bias because you have it too. (laughs) Don't judge people for binary sorting because your brain does the same thing. So it's, this is how people end up, you know, social science shows that most people decide what they believe and then they find all the reasons to support it. Right. So we're not really that rational as much as we think we are. And then we get mad at other people for not being rational. (laughs) Hello, dear friends and damn givers. This is the Let's Give a Damn podcast, and I'm Nick LaPara. On this show, I have conversations with all kinds of amazing humans that have two things in common. They all give a damn, and they're all striving to live meaningful lives. Thank you for hitting play. Thank you for showing up this week. I'm so glad you're here. Friends, if you live in the United States or pay attention to what's happening here, no matter where you land politically, it's clear that the last five or six years have been incredibly difficult. If you're like me, you've had arguments with family members. You've lost a friend or two or 10. You've been called all sorts of names, and maybe you've called other people those very same names. Now, we could go back and forth about how we got here and who got us here, and that's a very worthy discussion to have, I think. But one thing is clear. We all need to grow in grace, giving grace to others and to ourselves, because when we are giving and receiving grace, we speak differently, we act differently, we think differently, and we live differently. Friends, my guest this week is none other than Kirsten Powers. If you pay attention to politics at all, then you've most likely seen Kirsten at some point going head-to-head with characters like Tucker Carlson or Bill O'Reilly. And you've probably seen her on panels alongside amazing humans like Jake Tapper, Anderson Cooper, Don Lemon, and many others. Kirsten is a best-selling author, a USA Today columnist, and an on-air political analyst at CNN. In the past, she has worked at so many interesting places and on so many interesting projects. She worked in the Clinton administration, for example, as the Deputy Assistant U.S. Trade Representative for Public Affairs. She left that job to work as VP for Internal Communications at AOL. Some of you youngins will have to go Google what AOL is right now. Like I said, she has worked on so many interesting projects and in so many different places. I won't get into all that. We'll get into some of that during the conversation. But all of her experiences, both good and bad, have led her to write a book called Saving Grace, Speak Your Truth, Stay Centered, and Learn to Coexist with People Who Drive You Nuts. And this book releases on the day this podcast releases, November 2. It's brand new. It's a truly fantastic book, which I've already had the pleasure of reading. I joked with Kirsten during our conversation that this book is my new Bible, because if you listen to this show and or follow me on social media, you know that I struggle with giving grace to myself and to others. Friends, I really enjoyed this conversation, and I know you will too. Kirsten is a wonderful human and a breath of fresh air. Please go buy this book immediately. The link is in the show notes, or please call your local bookstore and order it ASAP. Two big reasons why. One is, I truly believe you need this book. No matter who you are, you need this book. And two, the days leading up to a book releasing and that first week are incredibly important for the author. 
for them to show their publishing house that people want to read the book. So it's really important that we buy this book in this time frame because it's an important book and because it will help Kirsten. As always, before we jump into this beautiful conversation, a quick reminder that you can anytime and for any reason, email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. You can ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate me or the show, anything really. I just love hearing from you. And now without further ado, let's get right into my conversation with the one and only Kirsten Powers. Let's go. It's an absolute pleasure to have Kirsten Powers on the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited about this. I'm glad you are. I've been looking forward to this for some time. Your book, which will, uh, which releases the same day this podcast will be out, has been on my radar for quite some time because we, you know, we emailed, uh, I guess, sometime during the pandemic. And you were like, yeah. hey, let's do this around the time the book releases. And you told you, you didn't even, I didn't know anything beyond the title and the, kind of what the book was going to be about. I've been so looking forward to it because this is the book. And I've had a chance over the past few days to look through it in preparation for this. This is the book we need. I mean, right now in so, so many ways. And so I'm so, oh, thrilled. I'm so glad you feel that way. That's how I feel. But I'm so, it's so nice to hear, get feedback from people who've read it. I really hope it goes far and wide because we need this so much right now. Um, let's let me begin this way. It's been a hell of a couple of years. You've not only been writing this book over these past couple of years, but the pandemic, which we're not out of, unfortunately yet. I just I just actually like an hour ago saw that in the next week or two they're going to approve the vaccines for kids. I have three kids. I can't. I'm so I'm like literally almost cried because it's just been such a fucking hard two years with everything going on. Um, and not just that the Black Lives Matter protests and everything that's gone on, the insurrection, um, you know, thousands of Americans became traitors overnight on January 6th and the Trump era ended during this last couple of years. So how are you, like really, how are you doing right now just with everything that's been going on and sort of we're clawing our way out of it, it seems? Yeah, I... I am actually doing well. And that is not something I don't think I could have said a couple years ago, for sure. I was in a horrible, horrible place. And it's not that I don't care about all the things that you just mentioned. I a thousand percent too. I have all the same concerns. I'm alarmed. I'm concerned. I'm scared. All the things that everybody's feeling. But I think by going through this process of you know, they, they say you write the book that you need to read. And I think that that ended up being very true for me, that I really learned about grace as a practice. And so it's something that I practice in my life every day, sometimes hour by hour. <laughs> um, and it makes a huge difference. It's really reoriented me in a way that I can stay engaged without taking on all the burdens of the world and to just really handle what belongs to me and then do the best that I can to help the other situation. But I found when I was being sort of crushed under the weight of it all, I wasn't very helpful to other people. And so I have gotten to a place where I feel like I can actually say that I'm a happy person and I'm very concerned and worried. That's an interesting balance that I have yet to 
get under control <laughs> in my own life. As a very staunch and strong Enneagram 8, I oh, I'm an eight. Ha- I, I know you are. I, I, I know that just from what I know about you. And we want to fix everything. And we want justice to be served in every single situation. And when we see a, a, a path, and when we see a, a solution to a problem and people aren't adhering to that solution, they're not going after it, it just, it, it blows my mind. And there's been so much of that the last couple of years. Maybe it always was like that. And now just with social media and, and Trump, which just made everything even a hundred times crazier than it was before. Maybe it was always like that. Maybe that sort of feeling was always there, but it really feels like it was pretty intense the last couple of years. So it's interesting that you, and I don't know if that was always planned to write the book now, or if these situations actually, you know, uh, spurred you to write this book. Um, but either way, I'm so glad it's here. I, I do, I do want to get a little bit of life context before we jump into the book. We have a limited amount of time, but I always find the context really helpful because a lot of people know you, they've seen you on TV, but they may not know some of the the background stuff that I think is super important that really helped shape you who you are into who you are today. So let's just go through a little bit of that if you don't mind here at the okay. beginning. Uh, so you're raised in Fairbanks, Alaska. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I know the population today is like 30,000 people. Uh, <laughs> I, I imagine that it was th- that there were fewer people then. Maybe not. Maybe it was more hustling and bustling back then. But why <laughs> did your parents move y'all to Fairbanks, Alaska? I mean, it's just so far away. Yeah. Well, they, okay. So they claim there's 60,000 people, Fairbanks people do, but I've, I don't, I've never seen that. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, but it's sort of people in the sort of sprawling area, I guess. Sure. And it's, it's, it's about the same as when I was growing up and my parents went there, they met as grad students at the university of Wisconsin in Madison. They were studying, anthropology and they went on to become archaeologists and anthropologists. And one of their mentors went up to the University of Alaska and he told them, this is really amazing. You should come up here. And so they were like, yeah, we'll go up for a couple of years. It'll be a fun adventure. They went up and they fell in love with it and they never left. And so I was three years old when we moved up there. So it's really the only life I ever knew, um, you know, was, was growing up there. So it's a very, it's an unusual place to grow up. I don't yeah. run into a lot of people who are from Fairbanks. If I do run into somebody who's from Alaska, they're always from Anchorage. Right. Um, you don't run into a lot of people from Fairbanks. And it's also very intensely cold there in the winter in a way that it's not in Anchorage. Anchorage is much more temperate. Um, I think Fairbanks is what people think of when they think of Alaska. <laughs> which is absolutely like mortifyingly freezing cold in the winter. So yeah, it was an interesting childhood. Did Fairbanks have everything you needed or did you guys on a regular basis have to leave to go get groceries, clothes, whatever, or is Fairbanks pretty much it? I mean, we had it. We had a couple grocery stores. It was, I mean, I grew up in the seventies, so it was a very seventies and eighties. I was in high school in the eighties and you know, it was a very different time. People didn't just hop on airplanes and and fly off. Getting on a plane was actually a really big deal. And so we're so far removed from going anywhere else. Even going to Anchorage is, you know, a 45 minute flight. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like you could just hop over to Seattle, which is from Fairbanks about four hours. So we, you know, we were pretty self-sufficient and we had what we needed and we didn't have a lot of things that other people had growing up in what we call the lower 48. We had a movie theater that played two movies and it was the same movies for like 
a month or longer. Wow. And yeah, we just, we weren't, we didn't have as much access to what was happening sort of in the outside world. Obviously there wasn't an internet. We didn't have cable news until I was in high school. So we were kind of cut off from what was going on other than to watch the evening news or listen to NPR or something like that. In, in a 2010 uh, Q&A you did with Matt Lewis, uh, you said that at the supper table, at the dinner table, you were expected to state and defend positions and issues every night at supper. Uh, so I guess because part of me was wondering, okay, how did Kirsten get from Fairbanks, Alaska to the East Coast, you know, coastal elites, quote unquote, yeah. like on TV, really like running with the best of them in the world. How did that happen? And I imagine, I would guess that some of it started know. right there. <laughs> did, did it start there? Yeah. Like, like was your interests and your, were you, were you developing faster than maybe other yeah. people in Fairbanks because your parents were pushing you to know why you were thinking certain ways or why you were defending certain positions or how did that happen? Well, I think there were other people that were growing up like I grew up. I went to a, a, a Jesuit Catholic high school with a lot of Irish kids. And I think this is a very Irish phenomenon, uh, a lot of arguing in the house, a lot of opinions. And uh, I don't think it's a coincidence. And then I went on to Fox News and argued with all these Irish people, Sean Hannity, you know, right. Bill O'Reilly, Megyn Kelly. Uh, there is there there's a cultural element to it. So I do think other people were having similar conversations. Now, my parents were professors, um, which is did set me a little apart, a little bit from my sure. friends whose parents were mostly business people. And uh, and so there was this real intellectual rigor to what I was being put through, basically. Um, and it wasn't always fun. <laughs> so I don't want to suggest that it was like Norman Rockwell, like whatever. I mean, yeah. I, sometimes it was pretty brutal. And so. Yeah. So I do think in that way, that's where that started. Look, I am an Enneagram eight. And as you know, our Enneagram number is really our trauma response. It's the way we respond. Yes. It's the personality we created in response to trauma. So whereas like my brother, I think he's probably a peacemaker. His trauma was, response was to be a peacemaker and try to create peace. Whereas my trauma response was to to meet might with might. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, it was me just come, my parents were coming at me and I was coming back at them. And that's, that was very much, I think the way that I made myself feel safe. And so that I always cared about the underdog. I always cared about the people that were being harmed. I always really identified with them. And so I think it's natural that you would end up probably gravitating to something like journalism. Some people will gravitate towards activism. There's different ways that that will manifest. But for me, that's how it manifested. The question I can't really answer is how do you get from Fairbanks, Alaska? You know, really, again, in a, in a time when it wasn't so interconnected. Right. Today, it's not as crazy because like my nieces are growing up in an entirely different place in the sense that they're pretty sophisticated. Yep. You know, they, they dress like people here dress. They, they see everything. They, they're, you know, I was completely cut off from culture in a way. And so, uh, and the way I ended up on the East coast was my mom was from the East coast. So she grew up in Arlington, Virginia, right outside of Washington, DC. I was fascinated with politics. Like my whole family was. And so we would come out here and visit my grandparents was very close to. And so I always knew I, I wanted to go to DC and I, I, I adored my grandparents. And so I wanted to be near my grandparents and that's really how I ended up on the East coast. But could I ever have imagined that I would be on television? 
not in a million years like that. That was unimaginable. Yeah, no, I can imagine. So you end up on the East Coast for for college, and, and now you're still still there. What were some of the kind of in a minute or two? What were some of the challenges you faced uh, in the I guess I guess you know late '80s, early '90s, kind of growing into your career and being a woman, and not just a woman, but someone who you know you maybe this is not new, but I, I imagine there's been some uh, you know, thread here. You, you you know what you want and you speak very directly and you can hang with the best of them too. I mean, people just, they just Google your name or YouTube your name. You're not you know, sort of dancing around the subjects. You're going toe to toe with, you mentioned Sean Hannity's and the Bill O'Reilly's and other people like that. I'll just say people to keep it safe here and simple. Like, how did that, what were some of the challenges you faced evolving, not just as, uh, you know, uh, a woman, but a career woman and in this space where there weren't a lot of people like you doing what you were doing in the way that you were doing in that time. Now there are more of them, but I, I, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, wasn't the case. Yeah. Well, I started doing this probably about 15 years ago, I think. Okay. Um, Before that I had, it it was a second career. My first career was working in politics mostly. So honestly, it's much so if someone had said to me growing up, um, you're going to have a job where you express opinions and you get paid and valued by being opinionated and actually standing by what you believe, I would have said that's impossible. <laughs> so, yeah. because of course that's like, would have been my dream job. Right. Because I was always being shamed for being opinionated, especially as a woman. Yeah. Right. And as a girl, it's like bossy and pushy and all the things. And so for me, it really was finding a job where I was rewarded for the things that people were saying were a problem with me because nobody was saying to me, Kirsten, you're a woman, stop doing that. Right. That wasn't, if anything, it was like, we need more women. Um, and whereas I felt like I, I experienced that more earlier in my life when I was working, you know, I was working in the Clinton administration and then I, I was working in corporate America for a while. I worked at AOL during the tech boom. And, and then I went into politics and worked on campaigns far more likely to run into that in those contexts of, you know, you need to dial it back. You're too intimidating, all those things. Right. But I've never really experienced that. Now I get the usual misogyny that all women get in the public eye. I get that. It's not really specific to anything other than expressing an opinion. It doesn't really matter how you express it. Uh, And so I certainly experienced that, but there's nothing really, uh, it's not about me. It's not specific to me. I don't feel, I feel it's just people who have some internalized misogyny to work through. (laughs) Or a lot, some or a lot. Yeah. Uh, Before we, before we get into the book, there's so much to talk about here. I'm trying to cram it in, but like, before we get to the book, I do want to talk about uh, some overarching themes in your faith journey, because faith is a huge part of your life and it's in the book and it's in a lot of the stuff that you talk about. So in, in, before 2015, you were part of various evangelical Christian, you know, denominations and traditions. Yeah. And then in 2015, you, you know, you converted to, you know, joined the Roman Catholic Church. Talk briefly about the before and what what were the some of the bigger themes and reasons why you joined the Catholic Church. And I have a vested interest in this because I have been, I grew up in, uh, my parents were part of this very abusive fundamentalist Baptist you know, that was oh, my, I'm sorry. That was my, upbringing. it was, yeah. it was, it was terrible. And then I hopped around and I've worked with the, the, I've worked with the best of them. I worked for John Piper for four years and I've worked with, you know, I've, I've, I helped the gospel. I worked at the gospel coalition. I did all, I worked with everybody, all the big names these days. And, 
you know, a few years ago, decided to leave that shit show. And I started joining up with uh, smaller Anglican churches, right? It was still sort of in the lane that I've been running, but way different at the same time. But I've always been deeply attracted to the Catholic Church for a lot of reasons. You know, ang- you know that Anglicanism is the gateway drug for the Catholic Church, yes. right? <laughs> yeah, I do. And I see exactly how it happens because I'm not alone. I like 15 or 20 of my friends that made, you know, went down the same path. Uh, we're all dealing with the same thing right now. Um, I so, did the same thing. Yeah. yeah. So for, I, yeah, I had an Anglican period. <laughs> It's, it's, and, and it's, it's been fun and I'm still technically there. I'm, I'm attending a Catholic church right now, but I, I'm still there. And so talk about what were the big themes that led to your conversion? Well, I think we probably would have to do a whole other podcast for me to really get into that because it's pretty complicated, but I, uh, I never really, I sort of fell into the evangelical world. It was not intentional. I went to the an evangelical church with a boyfriend, not knowing that it was evangelical and ended up really loving the pastor, Tim Keller. And I, and, and then really had this very profound spiritual experience. And, and these were the only people I knew who were talking about it. And so I sort of, that's how I sort of ended up there. There was always a tension for me though. I always felt like, I don't really see that. I don't really read that in the Bible. I'm not understanding it, but I guess you guys are the experts. I don't know. It doesn't seem I don't, I'm not connecting with that. And I, I had a friend who was, when I was at Fox News, Father Jonathan Morris, who was a Fox News contributor. He's actually since recently left the priesthood to get married. Um, we used to go to dinner and we would talk about faith and talk about theology. And uh, he would say things to me and I'd say, well, that's what I believe. And then, you know, and this just happened over and over. And he's like, Kirsten, you, you know, you're Catholic, right? Like <laughs> all of your theology is Catholic. And I was like, oh, ha ha, you know, like whatever. Yeah, right. Now my, my mother's side of the family is Catholic. So Irish Catholics. And so I, I grew up around that. And, um, you know, I, again, I went to a Catholic high school, so I I've been around that. So it was always kind of in the back of my mind, like, like maybe I'm going to end up there. I don't know. Um, And I ended up going on a trip to Rome, a a professional trip where I went on a a pilgrimage around, in addition to the other stuff I was doing Mm. around the city. And I was really amazed. I think I was really, it's going to be surprising for people to hear this, but so many of the the places that we would visit would be about female saints. Mm. And I was, and you know, in the evangelical world, there's not a lot of feminine. Right. And so I was like, wow. And they'd be like, yeah. And she advised the Pope in 14, whatever. And I'd be like, what? Like, I just was so like amazed by it. And I was really taken into like the divine feminine aspect of the church, uh, because we always think of it. It is obviously a patriarchy the way that it's run. Right. And, uh, And so I think that started my curiosity and I felt like, well, I need to really dig into this. And so I did really start to dig into it. I started attending mass, not taking communion because, because I wasn't Catholic, but attending mass. And I, um, the more that I learned about it, the more that I, I felt drawn to it. And I just felt like it was more where I was. It just, it just matched up with me more. I also think subconsciously looking back, I needed to make a hard break from evangelicalism because it had been so harmful for me. Yeah. And I, I just, it was a real, almost like a marker point of, I am not this anymore. I am this, I don't, it wasn't conscious. 
Um, and, you know, and then I got into the Catholic church and then I found out there's all sorts of horrible things there too. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and, and well, I, I had stopped, another crisis. <laughs> I, I stopped running yeah. away from, I stopped running away from, or trying to run away from structures that are harmful because they don't exist. Right. Like exactly. I, yeah. I am very distrustful. I don't like pastors, police and politicians. Those are my like three big, like like groups that I don't like. And yet I am part, I have a faith part of who I am and I still attend, you know, mass and I, you know, I participate in my faith life. I vote. And if somebody is harm, if somebody's breaking into my house, I'm still calling the police, you know, even though I will, you know, half my tweets these days are talking about defunding and or abolishing the police. And we can do that. And it's a very, it's a thing that we can do. I still participate in it, right? And so I stopped long ago trying to say like, oh, I'm going to leave. Because if you, yeah, if you leave evangelicalism and go to Catholicism, yes, there's this divine feminine aspect of it. And there's all these amazing uh, women saints. It still is a patriarchy, as you pointed out, exactly. where it's all men. It's from done the some really of, awful things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I think, and so you're really hitting on an important point and it's, you know, an early chapter in my book about unlearning binary thinking, the all or nothing and moving more into both and thinking, which was very hard for me as an unhealthy eight. So healthy eights actually can do it. And you're clearly healthy because you're doing it. Um, and I couldn't do it. It really was all or nothing. So the minute I got in there and you know, I had been told that, you know, by I had, when I'd gone on that trip, I actually at the Vatican met with a person who was overseeing, you know, making sure that there would never be a child abuse scandal again, and was told this will never happen again. Here are all the things that we have done. And then, you know, some more information came out and I just was like, I just can't with this. This is like, this is, this is so evil, right? This behavior is so evil, but because that's because I was in this black and white thinking, yeah, right? right? Versus a core teaching of the Catholic Church is is to embrace mystery, and to which is what Father James Martin really helped me with, and and Richard Rohr as well. That that you can't always know everything, and it's not all it's not all or nothing, and that there are things that are always going to be highly problematic about an institution. Um, but that's not really what the faith is. The faith is not the institution. It's, yeah. you know, it's something else. And so to not, cause I really was at a point where I just said, I can't, I don't want to be associated with any kind of organized yeah. religion. And father Martin said, you know, maybe you could just slow it down a little bit mm -hmm. and you felt called into this church. So you should just make sure that if you're going to leave that that's, where you, you're being called. And so I did slow it down. And so now I'm in a kind of, you know, hanging on by a thread sort of Catholicism. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. I totally get that. I love, I love Father Martin. He's helped me a ton as well. He was on the podcast a few months ago. And it's funny because that's yeah. where I'm attending right now, St. Ignatius uh, for Mass. And I, I, real quickly, before we jump into the book for the rest of our time together, I was there a couple weeks ago for Mass and a, kind of the perfect, everything I hate and love about church happened all in like a five minute span. I'm there with my daughter. And we have our masks on because we're still in a pandemic. And most of the people had masks on. Some did not. I guess it's not a requirement there. But this guy comes up to me and he says, I had my I had my hat on, which I understand is, you know, take it off, reverence. I totally get it. I wasn't thinking about it. Just walked in, sat down. The person at the door didn't tell me to take it off. So I'm sitting down. This guy walks up to me. I don't know him. He doesn't say hi. He doesn't say anything. He just says, can you remove your hat? Not please, not anything. Not hi. I'm, this is what we usually do. Just can you remove your hat? And so I... 
Like I literally was taken back. He walked away before I could even say anything. I took my hat off. And then I was like, you know what? So I walked over to him and I said, I said, do you work here, sir? And he says, no. And I said, you're not wearing a mask. We're in a pandemic. How about we both not talk to each other about the things we don't like about each other and just enjoy this amazing moment? And he was like, okay. And I went and sat down. But I was thinking, it was so funny that that happened. I don't know whether I handled that correctly or not. I wasn't mean. I was just like, I'm going to keep my hat on. You keep you keep your mask off and we'll just like leave it there. But it just felt that moment. I was thinking exactly what you just described. Like, those are the moments that have me hanging on by a thread, and I hope it becomes less of a thread and more firm at some point as I mature. But it was just like, why the hell? What is going on? Like, we're here in this beautiful moment. I am not hurting you. And you come over here without introducing yourself and tell me to take my hat off? Like, it was just such a weird moment, but it perfectly, when you were saying that, I was like, oh my God, that's exactly what I was thinking about a couple of weeks ago, about just the... it's. It's both and, right? It can't be either or. Yeah. We are screwing ourselves over in any structure when we live in the either or. Yeah, um, and I mean, if we're going to try to find like the perfect church, you're just never going to find a church. Never. They don't, it's not, they don't exist. And so, you know, can you also be a voice within that church to, you know, stand up for the things that maybe are getting lost in, especially in the United States where, you know, so many people treat their faith really, really treat their politics as their religion. And then they yeah. intertwine it and they give it kind of this patina of faith, but it doesn't, it's not really has nothing to do with, with Christianity or Catholicism. They're, they're just conflating their political yeah. beliefs. So can you be a different kind of person of faith? Yeah. I love that. Okay, let's dig into the book. Uh, super exciting book. You're a, as I've already stated, you're a great debater. You can hold your own. The Washington Post described you as a bright-eyed, sharp-tongued, and gamely combative. And I even saw this video on YouTube. You didn't put it out. Somebody else did. They compiled. And they, the, the video is called Kirsten Powers Battles Idiots. That's the name of the video. video. <laughs> oh and God, it's just, I've it literally is a compilation that. of you oh battling God. idiots. I don't agree with the, <laughs> oh, the no. title given to them. But um, so, so again, you're, you're an Enneagram eight, you're, you're known for holding your own and you're, it's very substantive. You obviously know where you're coming from, uh, you know, by and large, how do you, and I'm asking this sarcastically, how do you get off writing a book about grace? Like, yeah. how, how did, where was that moment that you said, I, Kirsten Powers need to write a book about called saving grace, about grace and how we need to live better. Yeah, I think the reason that I was the really the perfect person to write this book is because it was so hard. Mm. And I think it's hard for everybody. But since I'm speaking to another Enneagram 8, telling me to dial down the self-righteousness and and stop believing that I write about everything and know everything and I'm, I'm the savior of the world and I'm going to come in and save everybody uh, was very hard. It was very hard. It was very hard to become healthy, honestly. And so I recognized that I, I recognized that I was not behaving in a way or honestly, more of it was even what I was thinking about people mm. that, that the way the soundtrack in my head about other people and the contempt and the judgment and the hatred and then also with some of my behavior was not aligned with what I said I believed. So I said I believed in loving your neighbor and even loving your enemies. And I was so far away from loving anybody. It was a joke. And 
I also honest, I'm being totally honest, I didn't even want to be aligned. I just was this point was like, this is pointless. There's no reason to even try. Like, this is not, yeah. this is like laying down your weapon or something. I'm not going to do that. Like, this is not a time for that. Um, but it, it became pretty clear to me that this was an unsustainable way to live and, and that I actually do need to be aligned and I actually do need to align my behavior and my brain and my thoughts with what I say, I believe. And I had an intuition that what we needed was more grace and that what I needed was to have more grace for other people. And that's how it happened. It really came as an intuition. I didn't know it was going to be a book. Um, I ended up doing a Twitter thread about it, repenting for some of the things that I had done that I thought were problematic. I wrote a column about it. I write it USA Today. My editor asked me to write a column. And from that column, uh, a book agent reached out to me and said, you know, I think this would make a really good book. And the more I thought about it, I thought it, it would make a really good book. And I think it would be a really good way for me to spend the next couple of years yeah. really digging into this issue and figuring out, is this possible? And I'll be honest with you. I wasn't sure the book was going to get done. I, at many points I was going to give the money back and just said, I couldn't, can't do this because I wasn't sure if it was possible or for me. Right. I wasn't sure if I was able to get there. And, you know, the end of the story is I got there in a way, in ways I couldn't even have imagined, you know, that I could actually, like I said, care about what's going on in the world and not be a complete mess, anxious pile of like fury all the yeah. time. Right. Yeah. If my memory serves me correctly, that, that Twitter thread you referenced beginning of 2019, it was around the, the Covington kid, that whole situation, right? Is that is that correct with the timeline? Well, everybody, yeah. So that's when I tweeted, but it's not what it was about. So it was basically, that was the last time I went on Twitter and argued with people. And sure. I think that what it was, was I was already in this place of thinking about this and I had been dialing back my social media use and and really trying to figure out how to change course. And, and then I would say when that happened, I realized, and I thought I was making a lot of progress. And I think I was making a lot of progress in a lot of ways, but sure. I realized I got pulled back into it so quickly and, and behaved in a way that I, I wasn't super psyched about and also just had a horrible experience anyway, regardless of mm. my behavior, just of the way I was being treated uh, that I just, that was a point where I said, this will be the last time this happens. And it was the last time that it happened. And I, and so I took time and really intentionally did an audit of my public life yeah. and went back through. And so, so I ended up writing that Twitter thread where I named a lot of things that I had done. And then the same thing in the column. I think what happened was the, you know, USA Today, the picture they put with the column was of the Covington kids, but there's only one line in the column about them. So mm. it's, so people, it was about a lot more than that, sure. going back a lot farther. And so, and it was about how I treated conservatives and liberals and everybody in the middle. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't that I was feeling like I had, not had grace only with a certain group of people. I had been pretty graceless across the board a lot of times. And, you know, a lot of people said to me after I wrote that column, particularly my colleagues said, you're being too hard on yourself. You're so reasonable. You know, you're the voice of reason. 
like you just, you're being too hard on yourself. And I said, look, I think that's true. I think I am pretty reasonable and I think I can be reasonable and I can be the voice of reason and I can be toxic sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> like those yeah. two things can coexist and Both I don't get a true. pass. Yeah. yeah. I don't get a pass on the toxic stuff because most of the time I'm reasonable, right? Like I'm a grown up. I should not be acting like some dysfunctional 14 year old on Twitter. And that's what I was doing. And that's what a lot of people are doing. And I had to step back and be like, I am a full grown person. What am I doing? Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is not okay. I still feel like a uh, dysfunctional 14 year old sometimes on Twitter. I have, I have much to learn. Um, the book is saving grace and the subtitle I think is fantastic. I mean, there's just, just stay there. Just look at the title. Think about that. And already a ton learn speaker truth, stay centered and learn to coexist with people who drive you nuts. Um, I need this book. It's like my Bible now because I, I have this <laughs> weird, so I have this weird thing going on. I love people. I love humankind. I'm in love with humans. I think we have done and will continue to do amazing things and help so many people. And at the same time, I, the, especially the last six years, I'm going fucking just like nuts with how in, I mean, half my family, my loving, amazing family, they're good people. They run businesses, they help their communities and they voted for Trump twice. Like not just once, but the second time too, after four years of mayhem and, and scandals and all these things. And so I see there's just so much going on that leads me to just like slam my head against the wall all the time, but that's not sustainable. It's not healthy either. It's not sustainable and there's gotta be a better way. And I think I've learned it in a variety of ways over the last couple of years, amazing people like Father James Martin, who is so gracious, right? And grace-filled yes, in, so in how he leads and other people like that that have had on. This book is one of the things that is gonna help me and so many others um, get through not just this time, uh, but just, you know, through, through our lives, we, uh, have a couple, you know, a few minutes left. So instead of going through everything, I want to kind of like wet people's whistles for what's in the book. Mm -hmm. I love a few of the, I, a few of the chapters that I really love. Maybe I'll just like point out the chapter and give okay. just a, just a little bit, just a quick overview of what people are going to find. And again, this is, everybody should go get the book. Um, it's very digestible. It's not super long and super heavy. It's very, very readable. Um, start out with just chapter one, the thickness of grace. Grace is what makes human coexistence possible. That's a big statement. That's how you start the chapter. What is the thickness of grace? I think that, that it's, it, that it's substantive and it, you know, it has like meat, right. Yeah. In a way we don't normally think of grace. A lot of times we think of grace as being kind of passive and it means rolling over or not confronting people, maybe being a doormat. And that's just not what grace is at all. And I do use the Christian paradigm for grace, which is unmerited favor, but it's, it's, it's extending that to other people. And so that means when you look at, when you use grace with another person, you take your family, for example, you look at them and it sounds like you're already kind of doing it. You're looking at them and you see their, their humanity. Mm -hmm. If you're a believer, you see God in them. You see the divine spark in them, it, regardless of what they've said or they believe or who they voted for. They're more than that. When you're not using grace, all you see is the thing. And, the, and then that person becomes evil, a monster, 
wherever you go with it, right? But but it becomes that this whole person is kind of there's it's not even really a person anymore. It's just they're the thing that they did. And so grace helps you see the full humanity of them. And it's also keeps you from taking on other people's things. And so when when we think about grace, oftentimes people think, oh, we're doing it to be nice to other people. But most of the time, the other people don't even know that you're thinking the things that you're thinking mm, or that you're yeah, saying right. the things that you're saying. You're the one who's suffering. They're not the ones who are suffering. And so, you know, when you look at somebody and say, with discernment and clarity, I see this and this is a problem, you can then figure out what to do about it. Uh, it might mean having a conversation with them. If they've done something very harmful, they might have to be held accountable for that. Uh, grace does not mean not having accountability. That's a right. very important thing. Um, I just think grace-filled accountability looks a little different than the annihilation that we sometimes see where people just get decimated. Um, and so it's it's a way to kind of protect yourself using boundaries, for example, instead of demonization. And so you don't then marinate in the fact that this person has said this and they believed it and you're judging them and you've got all this stuff going on. And then if you're anything like me, you start having back pain and <laughs> headaches and you can't sleep and all these other things. And so you just use it as a way to, to kind of create some space and say, hey, I, you know, I see you as a whole person. This mm. is one thing about you that I don't like. Uh, I see the possibility in you. I see the possibility for things to be different. I see you as a person who's doing the best they can with what they have, just like I am. And one way I really learned about that was when I did that audit of myself, I was so horrified and so filled with shame about some of the things I had written or said it really was, I really had a hard time getting over it. And I was talking to my friends about it and my therapist, and they all started saying the same thing, which is Kirsten, where's the grace for Kirsten, right? Mm, and wow, so yeah. I was like, oh. And so I, I had to get to a place of saying she was doing the best she could with what she had. And you know what? I don't think it was that great, but it was the best she could do with what she had. And I can't judge her by today's standards of who I am. Once I could do that with myself, then it's so much easier to do it with other people. When you can just say, believe it or not, they're doing the best they can with the tools that they have, with the information that they have, that they're getting from people that they trust, that I would argue maybe some of these people shouldn't trust the people that they trust, but they do. And so they, they really believe that what they're doing is good. There are very many, very few people that actually are like, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to do some bad things and I'm going to believe some bad things. Most people, I assume your family believes that what they believe and what they're doing is for the best for the country, right? right? Is yeah. that what they say? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And so if you can approach it that way, then if you do decide to engage around the topics, I outline ways in the book that, that you can do it and, and engage in what I call healthy conflict. So that's conflict where both sides walk away feeling like, okay, maybe we didn't see eye to eye, but that was a productive use of time. I felt respected. I felt seen. I felt heard. Um, and, and maybe they'll actually be able to hear something versus this kind of showing up with your like list of facts of why they're the stupidest people that ever lived, <laughs> you know, which is unfortunately what a lot of people do. And a lot of people on both sides do it. It's not just, you know, it's not just one side that behaves like this. Well, we do that because it feels way better to do that. It feels better uh, 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 in my an, <laughs> in my animal side to mow somebody over 
and prove and and just yell that I'm right, I won versus the and I was going to I'm glad you you bookended the book that way. You went straight to chapter 12 which is the embrace healthy conflict which I think is is one of the major keys to living this grace-filled life is learning that okay, it doesn't mean I just did a podcast the other day with someone and they and I was a guest on the Living Centered podcast and they they said they they were both like not Enneagram eights, like very scared to you know enter into conflict. And I'm the opposite, like give me yeah. more conflict. Yeah. And I've and I've <laughs> learned that I don't want to run away from the conflict. I'm it's conflict with my with my partner, with my kids, with yeah. everybody I work with. That's not the 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 point. The point is to engage in a way. And I saw, I remember seeing this one video of you uh with um with Michael Caputo. Uh, I was, I think it was Anderson Cooper. And I loved how you were not taking it, right? Mm -hmm. He kept interrupting you. You did not interrupt him. So I loved that. I thought that was a good, and I think that was even before all of this. This was in 2018 or something. So it was before this big revelation. But even back then, you were showing signs of like, okay, he he, he interrupted you. You let him speak. But you did let him speak. You let him go and speak his absolute bullshit. I mean, it's just, it's totally wrong what he said, but you let him say it. And then when it was your turn, you spoke up and you did it in a very respectful way. So I think that's like, uh, there's so much in this book that we need to that we need to learn from. And I love that just in the show today, we got to like start it, the thickness of grace, and then end it with kind of embracing healthy conflict because that's that's conflict how we- Conflict is good. It is, conflict it is. Conflict is good. No, I mean, show me a relationship, like a marriage, you know, without conflict. And I'll show you a marriage that's on their way to getting divorced. Yeah. <laughs> You have to have conflict. There's no chance that people are always agreeing with you or are always happy with you. It's just, how do you do that conflict? And how do you, you know, I also have a lot in the book that I think is very helpful of understanding how your brain works against you and how other people's brains work against them. Don't judge people for having confirmation bias because you have it too. (laughs) Don't judge people for binary sorting because your brain does the same thing. So it's, this is how people end up, you know, social science shows that most people decide what they believe and then they find all the reasons to support it. Right. So we're not really that rational as much as we think we are. And then we get mad at other people for not being rational. (laughs) And so what they, what the social science has found is that what, what, if you're going to change somebody's mind, it's not going to become, it's not going to come from bombarding them with facts. It's going to come from sharing a story and from listening to their stories and listening empathically, hearing what they're saying and then sharing with them. And that that's that's the only thing that's really going to change somebody's mind. Nobody's, I, I've never seen a person change their mind because someone came up and said, I'm going to tell you five facts about why you're wrong. And then they're like, it just yeah, doesn't right. happen. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> and in, in, this, in, in our post fact world, it's really not going to happen because the first thing they're going to say is, where did you get that? And you're going to say the New York Times and they're going to go fake news or you're, they're going to tell you something and you're going to say, where did you get that? And they're going to say Fox News and you're going to be like, well, I'm not going to, I can't take that seriously. So it's, there's no, you can't have that conversation. Where would you, who, who's the arbiter, right? Who's the person yep. that both of those people could cite that both would trust? I, I can't think of it. No, it doesn't exist. And so yeah. it has to be more, look, can I tell you a story about my experience or tell that's you a story it. about my friend's experience? You know, my friend is transgender. Can I tell you what that's like? Um, you know, and, and to sort of, people believe that you have an authority over your own experience or the experiences of your close friends or family. Right. And so they're going to be more likely to be moved by that. Um, 
But if they aren't moved by that, you also have to have the tools that I really go into in this book to not take that on. Yeah. Um, because it's not going to change anything. Right. It's like, wh- who are you helping by taking yeah. that on? You should go. I, I say, figure out what you're a no to and be very clear about it with boundaries. And then also know what you're a yes to. So that mm. when you hit that no and you, you're up against that, that wall and it's not moving, you can go and do something productive. You can donate money. You can volunteer. You could do a podcast on it. I could write a column. Um, people, all, they can. you can find something in your life that you can do that will act, actually help address that issue that you're so concerned about that if, if, if your parents saying something about undocumented immigrants is just, you know, making you just absolutely insane. There's a million organizations that you can be volunteering for, or that you can be yeah. donating money to. You could be helping actual undocumented immigrants, right. Instead yeah. of shaming your mother and not changing her mind and destroying your relationship. Yeah. <laughs> So much wisdom there. Uh, Kirsten, I'm so glad you wrote this book. And when I say not just that the book is here, but that you wrote it uh, for the the aforementioned reasons, like our mutual friend, Miles Adcox, if Miles wrote Mm -hmm. the book Saving Grace, it would would hit, obviously, such a wise person, but it wouldn't be the same. It'd be like, have you ever had like a not peaceful day? Like you're always so (laughs) gracious. So for someone that's an Enneagram 8 to go through hardship and then like write this book, it means a lot. Um, yeah, everybody, uh, yeah, this podcast will be out November 2nd. The book is out November 2nd. Go buy the book. Um, you'll learn from it. It'll be, it'll be really, really helpful. Kirsten, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Dear friends, that's it for today. Thank you for spending time with us this week to find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn. Visit letsgiveadam.com. A sincere thanks to each and every one of you for showing up today. Please share this podcast with someone that you think might need to hear this message about giving grace and receiving grace and how we all need to grow in this idea of grace. Chats Navely, Jess Collins, and the team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out to me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.